The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. As we are coming upon this Easter season, I would like to share some scripture with you out of the Gospel of John. In um, chapter 17, it's what is called the high priestly prayer. This is Jesus as he was in Gethsemane, right before his uh, crucifixion, when he was um, sweating drops of blood. And we get an insight on what was on his heart, on his mind, in his last time here on this earth what his desire was and um, what he communicated with the Father. And I want to start in verse 14 and we'll see that uh, you and I were on his mind in those dire moments. Verse 14 says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I concentrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as I love, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the the wonderful picture that we have of your son, your faithful son. In his last desperate moments, Lord, he remained faithful to you. He submitted to you. He honored you by obeying your command and your will to willingly and joyfully go to the cross. And, Father, in those last moments, as he 
prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, he remembered us. And Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture of the desire of your son's heart and his prayer to you. That that great love that you showed him and that was in him is available to us and is in us, those who have believed in his finished work on the cross. Father, may we never forget that. And as we come upon this Easter season, Lord, may we always remember that the only reason that we can come boldly before your throne in prayer is because of what your Son did for us. And it was out of your great love for us that he did that, and he was obedient to do that. And Father, we thank you that even now, as we can come before you boldly in prayer, we know with confidence and with faith that your Son sits at your right hand, that even now he is interceding for us. And Father, that you, instead of seeing our sin in our unfaithfulness in our rebellion you see him in his perfect life and his perfect work and his finished work on the cross father again thank you that you loved us first and for all that you have done for us and father as we continue to open your word and to read your word father i just pray for Pastor Greg, as he, as I know, prepared so hard in studying your word and wanting to reveal tr- truths of your word in Second Peter. Father, I just pray that you will uh, speak to him as a, a willing and obedient vessel. Let the truth of your word ring out in this auditorium. Father, may it go out in power and may lives be changed. And Father, I pray that even now, that you will change our hearts, that you will uh, mold and shape our hearts to be uh, not only hearers of your words, but doers of your words also. And Father, if there is one here in this place today that does not know you, Father, I pray that through the power of your word and the power of your gospel, that your spirit would use that to open their eyes and open their hearts to the truth of who they are and the truth of especially who you are and your son is, and that, Father, that they will come to a saving faith. Father, again, thank you that we can gather in your house. Lord, do a mighty work in this place today. Father, we'll give you all the praise and the glory for it. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with me, you can turn to Second Peter chapter 1. That's where we'll be this morning. Somebody caught me in the hallway this morning and said, <clears throat> said, Pastor, I see you're wearing your suit today. Must mean you're being videotaped for school. And I said, well, bingo. Um, that's normally what that means. Um, sometimes it just means I need to do laundry. That also is true at the moment. But uh, occasionally, for those of you who don't know, I'm in a doctoral program and uh, there's a camera that sits back there, and these, these things get sent off to other people to look at. And so sometimes I suit up, but um, we don't have a dress code here at Grace on the Ashley, right? Uh, we, we come with hearts that are pure before the Lord. We seek to make sure our hearts are right. And the outside, well, it is what it is, right? Second um, Peter chapter 1. We, we find ourselves in Second Peter chapter 1 looking at verses 1 through 4. 
We started this last week, and I know for some of you who weren't able to be here with us last week, it's kind of like jumping into the middle of a movie where you've missed the first half. And uh, this morning I want to try and take a few moments to kind of catch you up because this first part of Second Peter 1 is a really critical piece to understanding the whole book. If you were with us a couple weeks ago when we did the overview of Second Peter, you understand what, what we're looking at when we look at this book. We're looking at a letter that was written by the Apostle Peter to some dear friends of his. He had, he, had, he had known these people personally. He had likely talked to them about the gospel and led them to Christ. And he loved them and he's nurtured them and he's helped them grow in their faith. And Peter knows that he's going to die soon. We don't know how he knows that. He just knows that. The Lord's made it known to him that his life is about to come to an end. And so, Peter's very concerned. He's very concerned for his friends that after he dies that false prophets are going to come into the church and they're going to begin to spread all sorts of heresies and lead his beloved friends away from Christ. That they're going to be deceived and follow after false prophets and have their faith shipwrecked. And so Peter writes this letter as a godly man to some of his godly friends in order to, as a godly, mature man, protect them against what he knows is coming down the pike. And so when we look at this letter, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at a letter from a godly man to his friends, trying to help them prepare for his death and to help them prepare for false prophets that are going to come and teach all sorts of heresies so that they'll be uh, sort of stabilized in their faith, so that when those things happen, they won't be swayed away from the truth. And so we're looking at a letter that has incredible relevance to us. Because we live in a day where heresy is all around. We live in a day where false prophets just live and move and breathe all around us, teaching all sorts of crazy, nonsensical things, many of those crazy, nonsensical things, in the name of Jesus. And if we're not stable in our faith, if we're not secure in who we are in Christ and what we believe, it's very, very easy to be deceived and to be led away, to follow after something that's simply not true. And to end up with a faith that's shipwrecked. And so we're looking at this letter, understanding that it was written a really long time ago, but it has incredible relevance to what we're working with and dealing with right now in the midst of our culture. If you don't believe me, just turn on cable television if you have it. Turn to any religious channel and just watch for 15 minutes. I don't encourage any more than that. Just 15 minutes. It's probably all your blood pressure will be able to handle. But you just start listening to what comes to the television in the name of Jesus Christ, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Most of it is just pure nonsense. And it's easy to tell that it's nonsense, because when you actually compare it to what God's Word actually says, you'll find that people are teaching all sorts of things that don't line up with the Scriptures. If it doesn't line up with the Scripture, it's a false prophet. But it's all around us, and it's, and it's all around us. And it will cross the radar of your life at some point if it hasn't already. And so this, is, this matters to us. And, and Peter is going to go right at this. When we get to chapter 2, he's going to go right at these false prophets. And he's, going to, I mean, he's just going to lay bare exactly who they are, exactly what they are, exactly what kind of people they are, and how God's people need to react to them. But before he starts dealing with the heretics and the false prophets, he begins this letter to his friends by reminding them of the foundation that matters the most. If any of us are going to be stabilized in the face of false prophets and lies, then we have to first stand firm in our faith and know that we are a Christian. We have to know that we belong to Christ. We have to have that that foundation built in our hearts and secure. 
We have to know who we are in Christ before we can begin to then compare to the false prophet. And so that's what Peter is after in the very first part of this chapter, these first four verses in the introduction. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 to you. And uh, if you have your Bible, you can follow along. If not, just listen. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. For His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So word of the Lord, and we'll stop there. The way Peter lays this out is rather, it's rather confusing, particularly in the grammar. We mentioned this last week. So what I've done for this two-piece series is just sort of organize this, this text by way of three questions. The first question is, what is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? We answered that last week. And the answer to that question, I know you remember from last week. To be a Christian is to know Christ and be known by Him. That's a good definition of what it means to be a Christian. All throughout Second Peter, Peter talks about knowing Christ, knowing Christ, the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of Christ, to know Him. That is Peter's way of saying to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to know Christ. And he has two things in mind there. He has both a, an intellectual component and a heart love component. On the one hand, to know Christ is to know the truth about Him. It's to know who He is. It's to know that He is the Son of God. To know that He is God in human flesh who came to earth and lived the perfect life. And He died on a cross, shed His blood for the sins of His people. It's to know those things intellectually and to believe those things. That's the first component of being a Christian. It's to know Christ. It's to know the truth about Him. The second component of that is to know Him in a relational sense. And we, we kind of sort of played this out last week. When we talk about knowing in the Bible, it talks about a relational thing. It's a relational thing. It's not just intellectual, but it's a heart commitment. To be a Christian is to know the truth about Christ, but it's also to know Him in a personal sort of a way. It's to have entered into a relationship with Him. A relationship where we confess our sin and He forgives us. A relationship where we submit our life to Him and He has control to rule and to direct our lives as He sees fit. It's a relationship where we love Him and He loves us. Where He guides us and we follow. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to know Christ and to be known by Him. But this, that leads us to the second question. Then what does it mean to know Christ? If, if a Christian is someone who knows Christ and it is known by Him, what does it mean to know Christ? And so Peter kind of stepped us through a few steps in that last week. And we saw first two elements of this. What does it mean to know Christ? We saw, first of all, it means to be, to be called by Him. We saw in verse 3 of chapter 1. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us. Knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and His own excellence. We see that Christ is the one who initiates relationship with His people. He calls us. 
That is, at some point in our life, we're going about our business, we're reading our Bible, we're talking to another believer, or we're sitting in a church service, maybe like this, and somehow somebody presents the gospel. They explain to us what, who Christ is, and they explain to us what it means to be a Christian. And they tell us that in order to be one, you have to confess your sin, repent, and trust your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and enter into a relationship with Him. And when we heard that, Christ called us. It doesn't mean we heard some visible, I mean, excuse me, some audible sort of a voice. We don't hear an audible voice, but there's something inside of our hearts that says to us at that moment, what you're hearing is the truth, and you must respond to it. What you're being told is true. And it's true, not only in general, but it's true for you. And you need this, and you need to come to Christ now. If you're a Christian here this morning, you can relate to that experience. You can remember a time when the gospel was presented in your life, and inside your heart you heard it, and you knew that's the truth. That's the truth, and that's exactly what I need. I'll never forget when I was in college my freshman year. I had a roommate named John. Some of you heard me tell about this story before. His name was John. And John had grown up in a church his whole life. We went to high school together. I knew that he'd grown up in a church. To my own shame, I had never explored beyond that in his life, whether he actually knew what it was to be a Christian. I just assumed because he went to church that he was a Christian. It wasn't until we were in college and we were living together and, you know, we were sharing a lot of life together that it became kind of clear to me, I don't think John understands the gospel and I don't think he knows what it means to be a Christian. And of course, I had grown up in church my whole life and I should have been really well equipped for that moment, but frankly, I wasn't. Uh, I knew John needed the gospel, but I was terrified to share it with him. Can anybody relate to that? I, I knew he needed the gospel, but I was afraid I was going to mess it up and mess him up. But the Lord really put it on my heart, and he convicted me about this. And so, you know, I just came to this place where I said, all right, Lord, I'm going to do this. You're not going to let it off my mind. I'm going to talk to John about the gospel. So I had a little, a little paper track that walked through the gospel. And so I remember just being nervous and saying, John, I need to talk to you. And so he said, okay, sure, what? And uh, we sat down to, to go through this tract. And I fumbled my way through that tract. It was the worst gospel presentation, I promise you, any human being has ever given anywhere. <clears throat> it was so bad. It was so bad that I'm thinking all the way through, oh, my goodness, what am I doing? You know, I'm thinking, i got to get to the end of this because this is, this is just a bumbling mess. And I'm just, you know, flipping the page and reading it and looking at him and reading it. And he's just looking at me and we're going through this thing. And we get to the last page. And, you know, on any gospel track, there's usually the last page. It tells you, you know, it's a point where you, you want to ask them, is this what you'd like to do? Do you believe this? Would you like to receive Christ? And I got to that page and I almost didn't even go there because I thought, there's no way. There's no way. I have botched this so badly. He probably thinks I'm an idiot right now. Because I think I'm an idiot right now. But we got to the last page, and I paused for a minute, and I I just read what was on the paper. You know, so would you like to receive Christ? And I'll never forget the look on his face. He looked at me square in the eye. He said, that's exactly what I need to do right now. And I was stunned. Honestly, I was stunned. I fully didn't expect that. Not at all. But you know what happened? through my fumbling, bumbling, messed up gospel presentation that you would have laughed your head off if you could have seen. You know what the Lord did? He called John. He called him. Through my feeble little thing, he called John. When John heard those words and he heard that truth, he knew at that moment it was for him. And that's exactly what he needed. I didn't know what to do at that point. Because I wasn't prepared for him to say, yeah, that's what I need. I'm like, "Um, I think we need to pray. Maybe we should pray. Can I pray with you? And you know what he said? He said, no, I think I'll I'll do that myself. 
I said, by all means, I've botched the rest of this. I'm not even going to give prayer a shot. Go for it, brother. And John kneeled right by his bed in that dorm room, and he prayed to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, and he entered into a relationship with him. You know why that happened? Because through the gospel, Christ called him. When he heard it, he knew it was for him. He knew it was the truth, and he knew he needed to respond. For everyone who's a Christian, that's how you become one. You hear the gospel, and you know it's for you. Christ calls you on the inside, and he makes clear that you're his, and you need to respond to him. But he also does something else beyond that. Not only does he call us, but he grants us the faith to believe. I mean, to the, to the natural human mind, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ just sounds like, it sounds like fantasy. It sounds like nonsense. You know, God coming to earth in human form, lives a perfect life. He's killed on a, on a cross. I mean, and if I believe in him, my sins are going to be forgiven, and I go to heaven, and all these things. It just sounds like nonsense. It just doesn't connect with the natural fallen human mind. But for the Christian, it makes sense. Because when Christ calls, He grants the faith to believe. He grants us the faith to believe. We don't just sort of work up faith in our own self. We don't just kind of sort of, you know, figure it out and just believe. Christ gives us the faith to believe. That's what happened to John on that day in our dorm room. He heard the gospel and he believed it. Why? Because Christ granted him faith to believe. He opened his eyes, if you will. He turned the light bulb on so that it made sense. But there's a third component of this, of what it means to know Christ. It means to be called by him. It means to to be granted faith to believe. But it also means to receive his righteousness. You see, the primary problem that fallen human beings have is we are unrighteous. We come into this world unrighteous. That word we don't use all the time, unrighteous. It just means sinful. We come into this world knowing what it means to do what's evil and to do what's wrong. Nobody has to entice us. Nobody has to explain that to us, right? We just naturally do it. I have an eight-year-old kid, and I've never one time had to explain to him how to disobey or how to do what's wrong. He just came straight out knowing how to do that stuff. Never one time have we had to sit down and say, all right, son, here, let me explain to you how to do evil. I mean, let me tell you how this works. I've been a kid. I know how this works. No, no. He just knows how to do it. He just knows naturally because every one of us comes into this world with a natural inclination in our heart to do what is wrong. Right? Nobody to teach you either. You just figured it out. Fallen man, natural man's biggest problem is he's unrighteous. And the problem is our Creator is perfectly righteous. That means He's holy. He is perfect in every way. And our unrighteousness separates us from Him. In fact, the Bible tells us that he cannot stand sin, to even be in the presence of it. So, fallen human man has a real problem. We're unrighteous and he's righteous. He can't stand to be around us unless something happens to deal with our unrighteousness. But praise God, something has happened. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by what? By the righteousness of of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the beauty in this is this. To know Christ is to have the righteousness of Christ counted to my account. So that when I stand before God, I don't stand before Him on account of my own righteousness, my own good deeds. I get to stand before Him on account of Christ's good deeds and His righteousness. So the bottom line of this whole idea of being granted the righteousness of Christ is to realize this. It's not our own righteousness. We don't stand right before God because we're good people. Or because we've somehow figured out how to do godly things in our life. 
you can never earn God's favor by your own righteousness. You can never earn God's favor by your own good works or your own religious deeds or going through any particular religious ceremonies. The biggest modern lie about salvation, about what it means to be a Christian, the biggest modern lie is to believe that salvation can somehow be earned by human works. Every false teacher builds their doctrine off of some variation of this lie. And they'll come alongside you and they'll say, well, if you want to be a Christian, here's what you need to do. You need to do this and you need to do that and you need to stop doing this and you need to stop doing that. And if you do these things and you stop doing those things, then you'll become righteous and you'll become right with God. It's nonsense. Nonsense. When we believe this lie that somehow our righteousness can be earned, that we can earn God's favor by our good works, one of two problems occurs in our life. The first is this. People begin to think that this is how it works. That one day I'm going to die. I'm going to get hit by a bus. I'm going to, I don't know that's going to happen. I'm just thinking of what ways you could die. I'm going to die of cancer. Something's going to happen and I'm going to exit this world and I'm going to stand before God. And a lot of people believe that when I stand before Him, there's going to be this massive scale, right? And at that moment, God's going to take all of my works, all my deeds, everything I've done, and He's going to put all the good stuff on this side of the scale and He's going to take all the, the bad stuff and put it on that side of the scale and He's just going to weigh these things out. And as long as the what? You know how the story goes, right? As long as the, the good outweighs the bad, then what? I'm good to go. I'm good to go. He's going to say, welcome in. That's believing that we can get into heaven, that we can be a Christian, that we can be right with God by our own human works. There's a lot of people in our world that believe that. But that's how it's going to play out. And so when they look at their own lives, they naturally judge themselves, hey, I know, I'm, I know I've done some stupid stuff. I know I'm a bad guy sometimes. But in reality, over the big scope of things, I'm all right. Right? I'm a pretty good guy. A pretty good gal. I mean, most people would say I'm a good guy. Most people would say I'm, I'm a, you know, if you could interview my, my coworkers, they'd say I'm good. Right? I'm pretty sure that when I get there, the good's going to outweigh the bad. And so they don't think they need anything more. They don't need Christ. They don't need the church. They just need to be good people. The other problem... If we don't go that way with believing in human works righteousness, then we go the other way. That is, we just try real hard to be good people. But we find that the more we try to be good people, what do we find? It's really hard. It's really hard to be good all the time, isn't it? And so we work hard at trying to be good and we stop, try to stop all of our bad habits and we try to start doing all the good things that we think we ought to do. But secretly, when we lay in bed at night, we, we're aware of our evil thoughts and we're aware of our evil desires and we're aware of all the stuff that we haven't been able to do that we feel like we ought to have done. And so when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we're discouraged and we feel completely unworthy. How could God love somebody like me? I'm, I'm an awful person. I don't do all the things I ought to do. And I do a lot of things that I shouldn't do. So how could God love somebody like me? Listen, when we believe that being right with God is based on our own good works, it takes us down one of those two roads. Either to a false pride that says, hey, I'm a good guy and my good stuff outweighs my bad. Or it takes us down a road of discouragement when we realize that, you know what, I could never be good enough. And God couldn't possibly love somebody like me. Listen, neither one of those things is true. Because what Peter tells us here is to know Christ, is to have Christ's good works, His righteousness, charged to my account. 
The only way that I can ever stand right before God is to stand on somebody else's good deeds because mine will never stack up. And the Word of God tells us that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, we saw this a few months back. It talks about Christ and it says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without what? Without blemish or spot. Christ was a perfect lamb. Peter is saying Jesus was perfect. When he died on the cross and he shed his blood, he didn't shed it for his own sin because he had no sin. He lived an absolutely perfect right, a perfect life. And in his account, if you will, was nothing but perfect righteousness. Not one evil deed, not one sinful act. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 and following, it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Christ was perfect. He built out a store of perfect righteousness. And when he died on the cross, he didn't shed his blood for his own sins. He shed them for somebody else's. For yours. For mine. And here's the thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who did what? Who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become what? Righteousness. You might become righteous. Do you see it? He made him, Christ, to become sin. He took our sin, charged it to Christ's account, crucified him on the cross, shed his blood, paid the penalty for our sin so that his perfect righteousness could then be charged to our account. And by placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord looks upon us and he sees not our sin, but he sees what? The perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. I'm a Christian this morning. And the day that I die and I stand before my Creator, I will not be able to say to Him, I stand here and I deserve to get into your eternal home to spend forever with you in the glory and splendor of heaven because I've been a good guy or because I was a pastor or because I went to church or because I did a bunch of good things. The only way that I'll be able to gain entrance into that place is because when the Lord looks at when the, the, my Creator looks at me, He sees beyond my own sin, and He sees the perfect righteousness of His Son. If you're a Christian here this morning, listen, you may be discouraged at the fact that you don't always live up to your reputation as a Christian. You may just be discouraged that you're battling with different sins in your life and you're finding it hard to shed them. You may be discouraged and sometimes you even think, you know what, how could Christ love somebody like me? I still do these things and I still struggle in these ways. Let me tell you the answer is this. When he looks at you, he doesn't look at you and say, look at that filthy wretch. He looks at you and he says, look there, the perfect righteousness of my son. That's what he sees. And that's what it means to be a Christian. To know Christ is to enter into a relationship with him where he charges his perfect righteousness to our account and he pays for our sin on the cross. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful? That Christ has paid for your sin and that His credit can be charged to your account so that when God looks at you, He doesn't see your failure. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're counting on your own good works to get you into heaven, you need to realize you're counting on a foundation that will utterly fail you at the end. 
when all things are revealed. Because you're not nearly as good as you might think you are. And you're certainly not as bad as you think you are. But the righteousness of Christ is available to all who know Christ. That's what it means to know Christ. It means to be called by Him. It means to to be granted the faith to believe the gospel. It means to have Christ's perfect righteousness charged to your account so that when you stand before your Creator, you stand clean and confident, knowing that you belong to Him. I wonder this morning if you're, if you're here and you, don't, you look at your own life. Is that, is that the reality? Do you know Christ? Has there been a time in your life when you've heard the gospel and, and the, the light bulb has come on in your heart and you said, you know what, that's the truth. And that's exactly what I need. And in your heart was granted a faith to believe it. At that point in your life, you confessed your sin and you cried out to God, Lord, save me. I give you my life from this day forward. If you've ever done that, then in that very moment, the righteousness of Christ was credited to your account and your sin was marked paid in full. And that's what makes you a Christian. That's what it means to know Christ. But Peter finishes up this section with, with giving us some, some things beyond that. He tells us that to, to be a Christian is to know Christ and what? Be known by Him? Let's say that together. To be a Christian is to know Christ and to be known by Him. And we need, need to understand what it means to know Christ. Well, it means those things that we've just talked about. But then Peter says there is a whole flood of blessings that flow to those who know Christ. And I'm going to tell you, we have absolutely not enough time this morning to do all of these in detail. So I'm just going to kind of quickly move my way through them. And you're going to have to listen fast. Does that sound all right? I just want to kind of give you these and just kind of skim the surface of each one. And I want you to just realize what it means to know Christ. When we come to know Christ, these blessings flowed into your life if you're a Christian. Listen to the things that Peter talks about. The first thing he talks about is an escape from the corruption of the world. Second Peter 1.4, he says this, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. One of the things that happens when we come to know Christ is we escape from the corruption that's in the world. And there's the whole list of all the blessings, because we're not going to talk about them all, so you can write them down if you're taking notes. But one of the first things that Peter mentions here when he talks about knowing Christ is that to to know Christ is to escape from the corruption that's in the world. What is this he's talking about? Corruption. It's a word that just means decay. It means the, the idea of totally decomposing, totally decaying, corrupted, ruined. Peter describes a world in which we live as being a world that's corrupted by sin, a world that's decaying, a world that is, that is in the process of, of being ruined. The Scriptures in other places point that out. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 tells us this. We know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of whom? The power of the evil one. The world lies in the power of the evil one. Our heavenly creator has allowed for a time, the evil one, to run amok, if you will, on this earth. His day is set and his hour is coming when the Lord will deal with him. But for now, he runs amok here. And he he has in his control the systems of the world in which we live. And they are systems that are decaying and decomposing by his design. 
In Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, listen to this. For the creation, that's the whole world, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. There's a time coming when the Lord's going to make all things right with the creation, but for right now, what's the situation? The whole creation around us is in bondage to corruption. That means it's spinning out of control and, and it's deteriorating. Things are getting worse. Our life experience tells us that's true, doesn't it? But it's not just the creation around us that's enslaved to corruption. We, as fallen human beings, come into the world slaves to corruption. Listen to Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves, Paul writes, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You know, that's the way the Bible describes lost people. People who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible describes it over and over again as being slaves to sin, in bondage to corruption, enslaved to doing what is evil and what is wrong. The idea is that we come into this world with a natural inclination to do what is wrong, and we don't have the ability to change that inclination. That is, we continue to live doing things that are evil. And we have no power about us to do anything about it. At least not within our own selves. But the good news is, when we come to know Christ, something marvelous happens. Listen to how Paul put in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Talking of Christ, He has delivered us, or rescued us, from the domain of darkness. That is, the enslavement to the corruption of the world. And He's transferred us, where? The kingdom of His beloved Son. One of the blessings of knowing Christ is that when we come to know Christ, He breaks that enslavement to the sin and corruption of this world. That is to say, He breaks us out of that rut and He provides for us the opportunity to do something altogether different. He, he snatches us out of the world and places us into His kingdom. Isn't that great? He delivers us from the corruption that's in the world. He transfers us from the rotting, decaying domain of darkness. And he transfers us into the eternal, perfect kingdom of Christ. Our enslavement to sin is broken and He gives us a new power to live for Him. A power that we didn't have before. We escape corruption. If you're here and you're a Christian this morning, that's a blessing that came to you from knowing Christ. There's another one. In verse 2 he says, Grace and peace. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's another of the blessings that comes with knowing Christ. People who know Christ experience grace and peace. Do you know what grace is? Grace is simply the unmerited favor of God. That is, God's favor that you've done nothing to earn or deserve. When you and I come to know Christ, God is gracious toward us. His grace, the Scriptures tell us, abound toward us. That is to say, He pours out on us blessing after blessing after blessing. Things that we haven't earned, things that we haven't deserved. But He's a God of grace who loves to bless His people with good things. To give them what they don't deserve. To give them what they haven't earned. When we come to know Christ, His grace is multiplied to us. It's by God's grace that we're saved. It's by God's grace that He sustains us every day. It's according to His grace that He gives us spiritual gifts. It's by His grace that He gives us every single blessing that we ever experience. Anything good that's in your life is a gift of God's grace. If you're a Christian, you're here this morning. Anything good that happens to you, it's God's grace. 
The fact that you woke up this morning and got out of bed and had the strength to stand up, that's the grace of God in, in your life. The fact that when you, when you breathe in and you breathe out, everything functions like it ought to, and you live, that's the grace of God displayed toward you. You have good days where good things happen. You get a promotion at work. You get a raise. That's the grace of God. God blesses you with children. That's the grace of God. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him, and all of it is a part of His grace. And those who know Christ find themselves the recipients of His grace, and they also find themselves the recipients of His peace. Two wonderful things to have. The grace of God and the peace of God. What does it mean, the peace of God? There's two, two components to that. It's peace with God, and then there's an internal peace that comes from God. On the one hand, the Bible tells us that all of us come into this world sinful. We mentioned that a moment ago. But the other side of that is, not only do we come into the world sinful, but we come into the world as enemies of God. We see that all throughout the New Testament. We don't have time to trace it out, but I'll give you this, uh, just a, a couple little snippets of it. Romans 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh... Is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. That's how we come into the world, with a mind that's hostile to God, that cannot submit to God's law. And then a little further over, or back in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, it says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Listen, unless you know the Lord Jesus Christ, unless you know Him this morning, you don't sit here as neutral before God. You sit here as God's enemy. Do you understand that? Most people in the world, I think, think that they're neutral before God. They think that God is just kind of, you know, this big grandpa in the sky. You know what grandparents do, right? They never correct you and they always give you good stuff. That's That's why grandparents exist, right? So, you know, yesterday my mom comes over to the house and she takes my son out for a little while. He's eight years old and he is an expert con man. He knows exactly how grandparents work. And he got grandparents to take him yesterday and to come back with all sorts of good things. Krispy Kreme donuts, you know, toys. Most people think that's what God is. He's like a a big grandpa in the sky who never corrects us. Who we do bad things, he says, oh, it's okay, I love him who just lives to give us good stuff and just looks beyond when we do what's wrong. You need to understand that's not who God is. That is not who God is. If God was like that, you might stand neutral before Him today, but that's not what God is like. God is not like that. You know what God is like? Listen to Psalm 97. Listen to Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are around Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim His righteousness and all the people see His glory. All worshippers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. He preserves the lives of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. So on and so forth. Does that sound like a benign grandpa in the sky to you? That does not sound like that to me. 
It sounds like a holy and righteous God who is a warrior. And the Bible tells us every one of us comes in this world a sinner who's at war with him. We come into the world mentally and positionally his enemies. One of the blessings of knowing Christ is that when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, God takes us and moves us from the category of his enemy into the category of his son. We go from being hostile in mind to loving him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We go from being God's enemy to being his friend and his family. That is a blessing. There is a peace that comes between us and Him. No longer are we at war, but we're at peace. We're we're reconciled to Him is the way the Scriptures play that out. But the the Scriptures tell us something else about this peace. That not only do 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 we find peace with God, but He gives us a peace inside. An internal sort of a peace. An internal sort of a peace. Listen to this. Don't be anxious about anything, Paul writes in Philippians 4. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Get this. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we come to know Christ, there's a peace that settles on the inside of us that we didn't have before. Listen, we live in a world that's full of chaos all around. And then we live in a world full of people who on the inside are filled with chaos. They're absolutely driven and ruled by things like anxiety and fear and confusion. Riddled with it. They watch the television set and they watch the news with great anxiety and fear. And if if it's not global warming that's going to destroy us, it's global cooling that's going to destroy us. If it's not global cooling, it's something else. There's some other catastrophe on the way. If it's not an environmental catastrophe, it's a financial catastrophe that's on the way. And people are living lives that are filled with chaos and fear and anxiety. And those things rule in their lives because they lack the peace that comes from Christ. Listen, when a person comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ... He grants them a peace that, he says, passes understanding. A peace on the inside that says, you know what? The world around me may be spinning out of control, but I trust in Christ, and he's got it all worked out. So I'm at peace. Whatever happens, Christ is with me. Whatever happens in the world, Christ is for me. Whatever happens around me, Christ is going to aid me, and he's going to help me, and he's going to see to it. I get to the end. There's an internal peace that comes with that. I did a funeral this week for a 44-year-old man. He attended this church uh, on and off for a number of years. If you saw his face, you would probably recognize it if you've been around Grace on the Ashley very long. His name was Ronnie Rigsby. He wasn't a member here because he didn't live here. His parents lived by nearby, and he would walk here whenever he visited his parents over in Hickory Hills. And so you didn't see him every week. But he came when he was there, and he would walk here. And he would come and be a part of this church. Well, he died this week. Ronnie was a young man who, since high school, had dealt with seizures all of his life, severe seizures. And impaired his life so that he couldn't drive. But he did have a job, a a part-time job doing electrical work. He had overcome his disability and been able to uh, get an electrical license and was doing work. Had somebody else drive him and pick him up. But he had a seizure this past week on Thursday, and he died when he came home. And... uh, I did his funeral on Thursday. And at his funeral, there was an opportunity for people to stand up and talk about his life. And one of his co-workers stood up. And he said, you know what, I used to talk to Ronnie about his seizures because I, I, 
I just couldn't understand how he lived with that all of his life. And he said, I asked him one day, Ronnie, aren't you afraid? Aren't you afraid that one of these days you're going to have one of those seizures and it's going to kill you? And this guy said, you know what Ronnie told me? He said, nope, I'm not afraid of that. He said, I asked him, well, why? How could you not be afraid of that? I think I'd be afraid of that. And Ronnie's answer was, because I know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know if that happens, I'll be okay. That was a young man, in spite of serious disabilities in his life, who knew Christ. And it became evident because he had peace in his heart. He had a peace that said, you know what, I don't have to be afraid of death. I don't have to be afraid of dying. I don't have to go to bed at night filled with anxiety and fear. Because I know Christ. And Christ is with me. I'm not saying that Christians never struggle with things like fear and anxiety. What I say is this. We're not ruled by those things. We're ruled by the peace of Christ that rules in our hearts. That's one of the blessings that comes. Let me give you this last one today. 2 Peter 1.3 His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. The last blessing that comes to knowing Christ. He grants us everything we need for life and godliness. You know what that means? He gives us everything we need to live a life that pleases Him. You know that? If you're sitting here today and you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, there's not one more thing you need to please Him. He's granted you everything you need. Everything. Everything. You don't need Christ plus something else. You don't need Christ plus some mystical experience. You don't need Christ, what He's given you, plus some other list of things that have to be done. You have everything you need because it's been given to you. You want to live a godly life? Christ has given you everything you need to do it. He's not withheld from you one single thing. He's given you everything you need. Paul Tripp writes, Christ has not just forgiven you, He's completely and fundamentally changed who you are. And because of that, you can live in a new and different sort of a way. Chuck Swindoll said this, God doesn't merely provide the spiritual seed that we ourselves need to water and cultivate by our own strength in order to develop it into a fruitful Christian life. No, God provides everything we need from the seed to the sunlight, from the hoe to the harvesting tools. God gives us everything we need to live a godly life. You're not lacking a single thing to live a godly life, to please the Lord Jesus. You have everything you need. What Peter is saying is one of the blessings that flows from knowing Christ is He gives you everything and there's no excuse for not living a godly life because you've been equipped with everything you need. Everything. Every single thing we need. Well, there were two more that we won't talk about. They're pretty clear. He tells us in verse uh, uh, verse 4 that by these things He's granted to us all of His precious and very great promises. You know what we can say about that? Go to the Bible, flip through, and mark every promise that God makes to His people. And what Peter is saying is when you come to know Christ, you become the recipient of every single one of those promises. Every promise that Christ has ever made becomes a personal promise to you when you know Christ. I will never leave you and I'll never forsake you. That's a promise that's yours when you know Christ. I'll take your sin and I'll forgive them. I'll cast them into the depths of the ocean as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered against you again. That's a promise from Christ to you when you know Him. And the Bible is filled front to back with promise after promise after promise. 
from the Lord to those who know Him. It's a blessing that comes from Him. All of this to say, if you and I are going to be stable in a world filled with heresy, if we're not going to be duped by false prophets and people who lie to us about what's true and what's real, we need to know Christ. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. We need to know Him. And we need to have it firmly settled in our hearts that the reason we stand right before God is not because we're good people. It's not because we go to church. It's not because we do religious things. It's not because we get it right all the time. It's because Jesus died on the cross, paid for our sin, and charged His righteousness to our account. And we stand justified before the Lord on account of Him, not on account of us. That's what it means to know Christ. I ask you this morning, do you know Christ? Do you know Him? Do you know Him? I'm not talking about do you just know things about Him. I'm not talking about do you go to church. I mean, do you know Christ? And you'll know that you know Him because those blessings that we just listed in that list are things that are experienced by you. They're the reality of your life. You experience the grace of the Lord. You know what it is to have that internal peace because you've experienced it. You know what it is to have escaped from the corruption of the world because you've seen the work of Christ in your life changing you from the inside out. And you're not the person you used to be because Christ has transformed you and He's continuing to transform you into the image of Himself. If those things are not the reality of your life this morning, then maybe you need to know Christ today. Maybe as we wrap up this service, you need to, in your own way, between you and Him, no magic prayer, no no, uh, super magical tradition to do just simply you in your own words before him saying you know what Lord Jesus I don't know you but I want to know you and I realize that I'm a rebel who stands right this moment as your enemy and I stand there because I'm a sinner and I know that I've done what's wrong in your eyes but right this moment I ask you to forgive me of that sin I ask you to wash it clean because you said for anyone who comes and asks, you'll, you'll grant that. So I'm coming and asking for you to forgive my sin. I'm, I'm, at this moment in my life, I'm turning from that kind of a life, and I'm going to do what I can to honor you with the rest of my life. Whatever I have left in me from this day till I die, I submit it to you. To rule as you, would, as you please. Be my Lord and Savior. If you'll do that this morning, you will come to know Christ. And all of those blessings will be poured upon you. And the righteousness of Jesus gets transferred to your account. And you'll stand justified before God. No longer His enemy, but now His friend and part of His family. Let's pray. We marvel at these truths. Lord Jesus, we are astounded at what You've done for us. We look at ourselves and we realize, when we're being honest... That we've done an awful lot to offend you in our lives. Every single one of us. And that you would be completely fair and just. Completely fair in sending us to an eternal hell. We would have no case to make before you. We would not be able to stand up and say that wasn't right, that wasn't fair. We didn't deserve that. Because when we're being honest, we know exactly what we deserve. But we marvel this morning that you don't give us what we deserve. No, you've loved us. And 
you've loved those of us who rebelled against you. And you sent your only son to live and to die for us. That we might be forgiven. That we might find eternal life. That we might be transformed from the people that we were to the people that you make us. We're amazed that you would do that for us. We're amazed that you would give us what we don't deserve. Your grace is amazing. For those of us who know you, Lord Jesus, we are so eternally grateful for what you've done for us. We don't deserve it, but we love you for it. And it's a joy to honor you in our lives the best we know how. Lord, I pray for those who may be here this morning but don't know you. Pray that you would call them to yourself and grant them the faith to believe the truth of the gospel. That they might in this very moment receive your righteousness and be saved. Do your work in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.